0: Welcome to the latest edition of the shindig uh podcast about archaeology brought to you by the red river archaeology group um as ever uh, I'm your host Dr. Tom Horn and I'm joined also as ever by our ace producer Luke Barry hi Luke hey
1: how guys. You are we name's Tom have a good one this week it's, yeah, a very, a
0: very dear friend of mine, um, Tanaya. Um, we were digging together at Repton, um, which maybe gives you a hint of the Tanaya's research interest. Um, that is the Vikings, and she's done uh, amazing work on mapping the Vikings. And she actually created an entirely open access project on mapping the Viking world. Um, and we'll send you out all the links to that when we post about this. Um, but um, just to give you some background on, on Tanaya, she's, she's currently she's just finishing actually her PhD. Um, she's based at the Trinity Center for Environmental Humanities at UCD. And she's also currently a guest researcher at the University of Oslo. And her PhD title is Mapping the Viking Worlds: a GIS, uh, so a graphical analysis of contemporary textual records and archeological material related to the Vikings. So she's gonna defend that in, in this uh, spring. And we had Ron today um, for for two reasons, uh, three reasons. She's she's a friend of ours, um, and she also used to work for the Red River Archaeology Group. And she was actually our first podcaster, along with uh, with with Johnski, and they created season one. So we wouldn't be here without Tanaya and 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 John. So um, you know, it, w- w- any excuse to to say thanks um, was was important to us. Yeah. But Tanaya's research on Vikings is absolutely fascinating and i'm mean, just interesting look what what you thought when i said yeah i'm going to talk to another one of my friends about the vikings what were you thinking oh no self oh no are you thinking this is going to be- how yeah. much
1: editing am i going to have to do because this will go six or seven hours <laughs> and, and I near, nearly if does. i let you if i let you go six or seven hours you would have went six or seven hours <laughs> yeah
0: and <laughs> well, i think that's what you'll see in this i mean i think there's i couldn't see luke's face but um, you know, looking at tonight and I's eyes at one stage when we got really into the Vikings <laughs> and really into Gotland and Durham's and what's happening in the 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 area of modern Denmark in the eight fifties, we got really into it. And if, yeah. if Luke had just stopped recording, we'd still be talking now. We wouldn't <laughs> have noticed it. Didn't it didn't matter at that stage? So hopefully you'll get as into it as as Tanai and I did, as we're talking about Mac and the Vikings, we're talking about you know where they were going and when and tonight's got some really fascinating theories about there being sort of two distinct groups of vikings and in, in a sort of a chronological sense in the main but also geographically and, and where they're where they're from in, in scandinavia so hopefully uh, we've just finished recording it and uh, hopefully you'll have as much fun as as, as luke and i did and and uh, yeah here, here you are <laughs> Hi tonight, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, As you know too well, um, I'm a big Vikingist too, but I think the thing I always like to ask people who study the Vikings, there's lots of obvious things you can be interested in, but what was the first thing you learned maybe as a kid um, or saw about the Vikings that made you think, actually, these guys, these guys have something about them that I want to spend far too much my life studying?
2: Um, well, you know, uh, I am American, uh, unfortunately, and uh, my last name is Jørgensen, and so I grew up just hearing, oh, you're Norwegian, you're Norwegian, even though, like, we're not, like, we're, like, was seventh generation American Norwegian, um, and so it was just always kind of uh, put into my head that we had um, this kind of background in it. And so in 2014, I went to Oslo and I was visiting and I went to the Viking Ship Museum and I walked in and I saw the Oseberg ship and I had this out of body experience where I just like, I felt like I could hear the paddles and the waves and I was like, oh my God, this is it for me. And I know that sounds really corny, but it was just, it was such an awe-inspiring moment. And then I've had just such uh, an exciting career doing my master's between Iceland and uh, Norway in the Viking medieval North studies program. Um, and and it's just been amazing to study the Vikings in their uh, in their homeland essentially and experience that. Um, just kind of a kindred experience, I suppose. Being out in nature has always helped, I think.
0: Yeah, I mean that's because you're based in Oslo at the moment, aren't you? So you you can you can sort of see. I think now they're rebuilding the the Viking ship museum, aren't they?
2: They are, yeah. So it's closed right now, unfortunately, but it will be reopened in 2026, I think.
0: Fantastic. Well, I'll I'll have to come and visit to see it see it then. But until then, or just before then, you've been studying for your PhD um, about mapping the Vikings now. I also think it's a good thing at the start of a pod just because I'll forget we'll just start talking about Vikings but I think (laughs) it'd be a good idea if you just gave us um, I suppose this is what the podcast hopefully people are listening to for for that but if you had to tell the listener you know this classic two minute elevator pitch what your thesis is is about what what would you what would you say to them and, and and to me now about that
2: my PhD is called uh, Mapping the Viking Age, a GIS analysis of the contemporary evidence. And I did see in your notes that you selected s- selected contemporary evidence, but um, you know, just had to shorten the title a little bit. But what I have done is I have collected um, the co- contemporary historical records uh, being uh, for the sake of the project, just being annals and chronicles. Uh, so the Frankish annals, the Anglo-Saxon chronicles and the Irish annals. Um, and then I have taken archaeological uh, materials relating to coin and silver hoards, as well as burials and uh, female jewelry that has been identified in the in England in the Portable Antiquities Scheme. And so I have mapped all of that against each other. So with the historical records if they say they attacked Paris, then I will take that entry, geo geo coordinate it. And, um, and so then when you map it against each other, you can kind of see where they've been, where the historical sources match up with the archaeological sources, and where they don't. And my biggest frustration um, within Viking studies is that you tend to get very niche, niche scholarly reports of the Vikings in England or the Vikings in Ireland, um, when my- Most scholars will be very quick to say the the Vikings did not see borders, they did not not care about borders, they they were just doing their own thing and moving between all these places. So by taking all of this uh, evidence and mapping them against each other, I was able to get this really kind of bird's eye view, holistic uh, understanding of the geographical distribution of how and when they went about all these things between 790 to 920. So,
0: you know, what then, you know, we've, we've, you know, the elevator doors are opening and I'm just trying to say, this is fascinating tonight, but before you go, what, what, what is your big takeaway? What is, you know, sort of drum roll? What can you tell us now? You may not want to reveal too much, but what, what, what's the sort of takeaway from, from all your many years of research into, into mapping the Vikings?
2: So I'm going to say, I'm happy to tell anybody what I've learned I'm not the thing about the map is I actually have made it like open access so if you attach the website people can go and they can play around and click on different points and stuff um, and I want that I want I want it to be accessible I'm not a big fan of academia and the ivory tower type thing so but what my my big understanding is is that it's all politics I believe that um the as it, it you know, I think we all have this idea that the Viking Age started in 793 with the attack on Lindisfarne, but that's such an English narrative. Sorry, no offense to our English listeners, um, but that's such an English narrative because what's happening is the Carolingian kingdom over in Francia, um, which is now France and Germany and the Netherlands, um, the, Charlemagne was building this gigantic kingdom in the Carolingian empire and he was pushing north into Saxony, which is now northern Germany. And th- there was the tri- the Danish tribes in Jutland were looking south and looking at this empire moving toward them, and they were going a uh, hard pass, no thank you. And they built this gigantic wall called the Danewierka. And it is my opinion that in response to this uh, massive Frankish army moving north, that the Danish kingdom then kind of consolidated into what we would. Recognized as a centralized kingdom, and as you have this centralized kingdom forming in Denmark, you also have power ripples disrupting up into the north into Norway. Um, and I, Dagvin Skræ has done some work on the Ablesness, and I'm not necessarily sold on the idea that there was these sea kings in Ablesness, but you do see ripples of power and how that affects. And so then I do think that within Scandinavia, within Western Norway these pirates were being pushed out and so they went um, to then 793 Lindisfarne and, and then Ireland and so I think it's all politics and as you kind of follow this narrative you using the map and watching all of Europe and not just England and not just Ireland and not just rank it as you watch it all happen um, you can kind of see that perhaps the Great Army should be renamed, and I do, within my thesis, I do rename it the Channel Army, because it's not all about England. It's happening as well in Francia, and there are settlements in Normandy and Brittany as well. Um, and I think that has to do with the collapse of the Danish kingdom in the 850s, and a power vacuum forms and pushes out leaders who are then looking out to carve individual territories, and they've managed to do that within Northumbria and East Anglia, and in Normandy and Brittany so I think think, it's all politics
0: No, that's that's fascinating it's all politics and the ripples of power is a line I'm definitely going to steal and 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 obviously quote you on that but I think that's really interesting I I think I want there's two aspects to that what's happening in the Baltic and to the east and what's happening to 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 the west but from my perspective this idea of the channel army and, and you know sort of Christian humans work um on 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 the Vikings in the low countries and and, and Frankie as well is really interesting that people now are beginning to see, you know, this is the kind of, you know, as I say from 8, 850s again in my research, 850s when things really start to change and take on a new flavor. So this is something I'll be really fascinated to re- read in your research, re- research that, that will be coming out over the next uh, few few years. Um, and, and looking then, at, you know, the, this this sort of locus of activity between the, the the Danish territories, which of course go up into sort of southern Norway and and, and southern uh, Sweden. Um, what is kind of happening then is there's 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 a major change around about the eight fifties in that sort of coastal band between Denmark and and Normandy and Brit- Brittany. Um, and my work is kind of, sort of saying, yeah, these are the groups that then seem to be active. Then they they go over to Ireland, or they they, they sort of disrupt. They're disruptors, to you, to use this sort of modern sense there. And then again, it seems to be these same groups that then say, okay, we've done this in Ireland. You know, these Anglo-Saxon kingdoms look fairly ripe for the for for the plucking. So, what's your opinion then of what that critical period between, sort of like eight fifty and Nine hundred, and we'll say in in the West first, particularly between and eight fifteen eight and in the early eight seventies.
2: What what's my take on it? Yeah. Um, I work. So I, I must admit I do very little in Eastern Europe. So I I I do an area that I call Atlantic Europe, which is anything that kind of touches the Atlantic and North Sea. Um, and then kind of, I do look at the silver that arrives in the Baltic, but not not specializing in it. Um, but yeah, so 850s, I mean, as I said before, I think there is evidence in the historical, uh, in the Frankish Annals that the Danish kingdom collapses during the Civil War. Um, and you see uh, Danes who were granted uh, Frankish lands under the Frankish Kings, they try to go back into Denmark Ah, uh, to reclaim the, to reclaim kingship, or, so they're clearly royals or nobility, um, and then they get driven out again. And similarly, in the 860s, you have the uh, arrival of these uh, kings or leaders. Um, in as I said, the the great army, which is I think the Channel army, going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth between um, England and Francia, uh, but um, I think. I have to say, and this is highly controversial, and I know that I'm gonna get into a lot of trouble, but I think that the Ivar connection in the 850s to about 900, I think the Ivar connection between Ireland and England in this 50 year period, wishful thinking, complete fabrication. Don't believe in it, I think it's silly. I'm sorry. And people are going to come for me. I know they are.
0: And this um, ends the podcast. Uh, <laughs> <gonna> <laughs>
2: exactly. Yeah. So, because um, I, I have to say, Tom, you are cited in my in my research. And I know that you are a uh, a big uh, Iverson person. And I'm not saying the Iverson connection didn't exist. I just don't think it existed in this period. Yeah. I think it was later. Um, because when you're looking at, like I said, when you're looking at this kind of weird... Oh, entire bird's eye overview what's happening in ireland is so different and when i say ireland i do mean the irish sea region so kind of scotland and uh Markham bay and the isle of man and then I, so i think that i'm people in the podcast won't see, but i am moving my hands a lot to map in my head um you have the irish sea area and then you have the channel area and i think that these are two different groups and i think the channel area I'm not going to call them Norwegians versus Danes, but regionally, I think the channel area is from primarily the Jutland Peninsula, the Danish area, and probably the Oslo Fjord. And then I think people who ended up in uh, the Irish Sea were likely come down from the west coast of Norway. And so, um, and you have people, you have settlements in Ireland from the 830s onwards, which is a generation before any any type of settlement that you get in England and Francia and I think that's significant because this kind of colony the satellite colony in Ireland and the Irish Sea is um kind of further progressed it's a generation ahead and they have they have their own cities Dublin is a city state by the 870s 880s 890s um so yeah that's my take on it and uh you see that too with this um I guess I guess the problem is is my PhD is so visual that like I want to it's hard to describe on a podcast because I want to be like yeah look you, you can see the the durance and you know but you, you can't not on a podcast.
0: Absolutely fascinating. I think I think the interesting thing is regardless of my conclusions and your conclusions that people are really starting to interrogate the differences and the similarities and the connections or the 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 the, the, the non connections between the these channel groups that you you, you talk about and what's happening in Ireland, and and what's happening in England, and generational differences as well. I think that's something that people are beginning to really begin to sort of investigate. And I know recently, as a conference in the Netherlands, um, Jane Kershaw and Stephen Merkel's project about silver stocks, um, and we're now beginning to literally um well sometimes it's laser ablation but drill drill down into the silver and, and finding out that actually there are stocks um that are um basically connected to one area so one might be as i say a north sea stock and one might be an irish sea stock um and i think you know so that it's an exciting time that i mean we'll both be you know we're in that unfortunate period we're on the cusp of these great new discoveries so whatever we write now in five in five years or even two years will probably be a bit it could be out of date or it could be proved, but I think it's really an exciting time that you know we're all beginning to really start to drill down because I think as you know, as you're saying, for a long period, things have kind of drifted into various regional studies. Um, so I think your research is very exciting because um, it's something that I I did you know far 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 less sophisticatedly if that's a word but trying to just sort of step back and you take a big risk i think then as particularly in the viking world because it has become so regionalized in many areas to take that wide view of things means you're open to criticism from all the different regional researchers and all the different uh, specific groups of, of of research types So you're, you're dealing with silver you're dealing with fabrics and textiles um, and how, how have you found that then? Because, I mean, you're really, your research is, is truly interdisciplinary, and I'm glad I managed to say that, but
2: <laughs> you can look at
0: a lot of textual evidence and a lot of material culture evidence, so that's just the stuff, the, the artifacts. Um, how have you found that as, as a researcher to deal with, and what sort of conflicts have you had? Have you had lots of sources saying A, but the the material culture, the archaeological evidence is is is, is saying B. I mean, what what sort of conflicts or what areas we thought? Oh, surprised you! And You thought, well, okay, I've assumed this from reading the history, or I've assumed this from from understanding the archaeology, and then the other side is saying something quite different. Where's it? Where are the sort of interesting tensions in, in finding out what's happening in this this eight fifties plus period in, in the Viking world?
2: Yeah, I. I guess to start, I would like to say, um, this is where my mind went. Um, So I am very fortunate in that I am uh, still technically a PhD at the Trinity Center for Environmental Humanities. Um, Even though I'm studying a medieval project, I did not go into the Center for Medieval Studies at Trinity, and I went into this interdisciplinary um, more digitally embracing group of researchers and they have been so inspiring and I just feel very lucky to have worked alongside that team um, and that did mean, though, that I was uh, open to criticism from the medieval center at Trinity and um, there were some professors who were not that excited about my research um, and just thought that I had gone too broad and that I was in danger of not specializing in anything. That I wasn't going to be able to get a handle on the vastic, the vast data that I was using. Um, and what I will like, I will be the first to say, I am not a specialist. I'm not a numism- numismatist. I am not. Um, I am not a burial expert. Um, I can possibly read Latin, but not at all. And this is the problem with the sources as a Viking historian as well, if you're a Viking historian, is that the Frankish Annals are written in Latin, the Anglo-Saxon chronicles written in Old English, and the Irish sources are in a mix of Latin and uh, Middle Irish. And so if you're a Viking historian, that really does pigeonhole you because you are expected to be able to read all of them. And I worked mostly with English translations, so that was a big criticism: was that I wasn't, uh, I wasn't doing close readings. I was reading translations. I wasn't using the original copies. Um, but my argument is, is I was not trying to do a close reading. I was trying to distill this data into uh, points, essentially. And so I used very vague uh, a three, a three activity um uh system where i looked if if the uh, events that were described were diplomatic whether they were uh conflict whether that be violent whether that be murder whether that be a battle or a raid uh, just kept it under conflict and then um, a settlement and so that covered a broad range of things so like i said it's like 843 they attack paris I just uh, added the geo coordinates of Paris. I mapped it as a as a conflict, and I moved on from there. I was not interested in the hows, whens, or whys that, that happened because I did look at this kind of overview, and that does that has received some criticism and it has received pushback. And I have had people be like, "Well, you can't study these coins, or you can't study these, um, you can't study these periods without having like a thorough understanding." And it's like, "Well, I argue like." I'm studying a period. I'm mean, I'm a generalist, um, but I'm also doing this big digital humanities project, and I am trying to accumulate big data, so I can get big answers as opposed to being you know combing through with a fine tooth comb.
0: Right, I think that's what the field needs because I felt that as well. Yeah, you know, I like you. I could have said word for word about not being a not being a burials expert. But occasionally, I think every generation needs a few people—not that we're we we're, we're heroes—but we <laughs> need a few people to sort of, you know, to to stand up and be sort of shot at and say, okay, it, we've now got so into the detail that you know we can't see the wood for the trees. And I, I, I mean, I think the way and uh, interesting your your take on it. I think you know if if I have ten ideas and one of them leads to some sort of breakthrough or helps researchers say, ah. Oh, Oh, that explains why Viking Group A is doing this and, and not what I expected them to do, and then that can just open up their research, which may be just on a tighter grip of evidence, it's just burials or numismatics, um, and yeah. So, I mean, I, th- I think I think that's what we're you know we we're, we're both trying to do, and we're, we you know, we will get criticism for that. But you know, I'm I'm, I'm interested, you know, from from your research. Then I, I you know I've read online that you think then there are, you've got something called a the two-group theory. So mm. which might help, again, lots of researchers like myself and other researchers, maybe sort of it'll begin to maybe help join the dots, something that hadn't made sense before. You've got this theory. So I think if you can explain what, you know, what you're, you want to explain about it now, but in advance of your, your any publications, but just tell us about this. And I love the name of it, the two-group theory. So, you know, Tanaya, what, what is that?
2: Well, it, it's it's what I've already explained. It's the politics. It's the, it's the, um, in seven, about um, 790 to 850, it's um, kind of the Danes and their relationships with uh, the Franks. And they actually don't have a lot to do with England at the time. So it's their kind of aggregations with the, uh, aggravations with the Franks. And then you have the Western Norwegians who are setting up shop in Ireland in the Irish Sea. And then that does transform in 850 following the collapse of the Danish kingdom where you have the Channel Army um, and uh, and at which point the Western Norwegians have settled enough in, in Ireland that you don't have a lot of ships going back and forth anymore. Um, you have, you know, in the early 30s, 40s, 50s, you do have a lot of notes in the Irish channels saying more ships arrived, more ships arrived, more ships arrived. But you start to see that die out after the arrival of uh, Olaf Ivar and the Third brother, cousin, king, um, Oisel, and so um, at that point, you have um, the Hiberno Norse. So my two-group theory is roughly 800 to 850. I call them the Viking Norse, Irish Sea, and then the Dano Norse, and then uh, following 850, 860, the Viking Norse become the Hiberno Norse, and the Dano Norse become the Channel Island. So it's these strands, and you can see regionally how they stay the same, but they evolve.
0: And after that point, then this this later, you know, you were discussing my research later, which again I'm you know, more interested in that that say, that last quarter of the ninth century. Mm. What then is happening in, in England and, and southern and southern Scotland? Now one of the things is about, you know, what do we call this, you know, if, if we're not calling it the great army. So, you know, my, my question is then, what what's happening in the eight sixties, seventies and and the, the the sort of generation afterwards, as far as you can see in your research um, in, in, in the island of Britain, um, as it were.
2: Yeah. I mean, you also, like, it's also, when I'm talking about not being a specialist, is like when you're understanding the Vikings in these regions, you also have to get a really good grip of the politics of the situation that they're in. And so, like, I had to learn a lot about the Carolingians and I had to learn a lot about the early English kingdoms. And so um, Ben Raffield had a really great paper when he was talking about Band of Brothers. I think it was called Band of Brothers. Mm. I nearly um, mentioned that
0: earlier when as soon as you were saying about the, whether the brothers are cousins or allies, and I thought Ben Raffield's paper is perfect for that.
2: Yeah, exactly. And, um, but what he talks about is how it's not this great empire. Like uh, Chris Gorman also has talked about a hierarchy um, and it's it's these groups that come together. But ultimately, they're seeking to carve out their own individual tracts of land. They are these leaders, and that's why I think definitely they are kind of exiles from the Danish kingdom because they are probably royalty, they're probably nobility. They've lost their lands because they backed the wrong person. So, I, and this is of course all speculation, but um, in understanding the, the the ripples of power, you know, um, it I do think that you have these people come out and they're like, okay, we can't we can't stay in our homeland anymore. So uh, I was about to swear, um, but- <laughs> Well, I guess it's so a chance. We, uh,
0: Luke, Luke's got a big red uh, bleep button, so he could have just pressed that. It's fine, don't worry about it. <laughs> right,
2: right, right. Yeah, so yeah, but I think that they do basically just, uh, yeah, I think that they start carving out their own individual tracts of lands. And that's why you have the kingdom in Northumbria, who Guthrum does not have anything to do with. Guthrum's in East Anglia. We don't know who the leader in Northumbria is at the time. He's not named. Um, You have Northumbria, you have East Anglia. As I said before, you have um, Normandy. You likely have places in... uh, Yeah, and Normandy, by the way, was settled long before Royal He's just the first one who's really named and signed a treaty, but you definitely have settlements in in, uh, Normandy before that. And then... um, Yeah, so I think that that's what's happening. And so then by 900, you... You have territories that are marked out, but then you also have these um, hierarchy, hyd- these armies that are still kind of on. They they continue for a generation or more. I think they kind of become used to this kind of peri- peripatetic lifestyle.
0: I you know as an archaeologist, um, I actually started off as a historian. It's my it's my dark dark secret. Um, you know, studying Gregory of Tours and Abbotus of Vienne and and whatnot. How did you find the sources? And I think, you know, just, just for our listeners, what, what was the most interesting source? Of what were the kind of sources that you thought actually were most accurate when you sort of looked at them after looking at everything thought, you know the compilers of this annal or this history. You know, really, actually, had their finger on the pulse. They they saw this sort of bigger patterns, or you know, what these Vikings were maybe sort of trying to do regionally or in like that. So I'm really was just asking about you know some nice nuggets of either particular annals or particular historians. That you've read that you know helped enlighten you and, and, made, and made you think actually you know they're writing this in the 9th century but you know their, their analytical skills of you know the bigger picture is is is, is really impressive
2: oh i'm gonna oh. disappoint you no i oh it's dead boring it's, no. <laughs> oh, it's terrible no it's not there's nothing fun about the annals and the chronicles um uh, uh I guess like yeah you said that you started out as a story i did my i did my bachelor's degree in english literature and um i actually read the icelandic sagas and you know you asked before like what really got me into it i think i went to see the viking ship museum because i had read the icelandic sagas and i was like well that'd be cool um and i loved like lax saga of course because i'm a hopeless romantic um, and the All Saga, and so like I was like, oh, cool! Like there's going to be a story here. Um, but I think that's almost part of the reason that I kind of put all the sources together because one source doesn't tell a story. Um, I think I think there's a there's a scholar who refers to the Irish annals as fragmented, and without a cohesive narrative, that might be a direct quote. Um, and it's the same with, like, uh, it's the same with the Frankish sources, which are much more concerned with anything not, quote-unquote, Viking or Danish. Like, they'll refer to, like, oh, we had the Danish ambassadors down, and they said that they didn't murder this person. But that's just, like, a sentence and, like, a block of things about their relationships with the the um, the Arabic uh, pirates or the Arabic empires, um, the Spanish, the... Oh, the Britons, uh, like Brit Brittany, you know, the English marrying, marrying different courtiers. Like it's it's, oh, it's there is no co- there is no cohesive narrative, um. So I I find I found that all very very dull. I found it very dull, but uh, but worth it. And I think I think that's like moral of the story, right? Is like sometimes you just gotta push through it because there are nuggets of like gold.
0: I mean, that's, I mean, I think that's a really interesting point. For the first time a few months ago, I decided to read the Annals of Ulster for like, you know, three centuries worth because, because we're always like it. I mean, especially as archaeologists, we're very guilty. We'll just quote something we've kind of Googled and i will say Annals of Ulster and you'll just view that one year in isolation. So, you know, I do a lot of work with the, with the Governor Stone. So the, the, the Kingdom of Strathclyde, which starts because, well, from what we know is from the Annals of Ulster when they talk about the, the, the Dublin Vikings coming in and taking clicker or click to the sort of Citadel and, and Dumbarton. Yeah. I just quoted that for years and you know that's I hadn't looked before or afterwards and when I you know sat there you can you can tell my my, my Friday nights are, are fun but when you look at it yeah. as you're saying as as a whole and then you start to see those patterns so you would see nothing's happening nothing's happening nothing's happening again from a vikingist point of view and then suddenly it'll be like a little murmur but like you know i can't remember what they call them, what they call them heathens or northmen or whatever it is and suddenly you'll see one little blip and then the next year there'll be another and then suddenly every year from you know the the, the late 8th century until the mid you know 12th it's scandinavians and they're murdering each other and they're being murdered and then you see them their names slightly changing but they're still and I suppose that's what you're saying is it's you have to sort of step back. I mean, historians would probably hate this part of the podcast, but as archaeologists, we need firstly to read the sources because we're too guilty. I think a lot of the time of not. Um, but then you're saying you stood back and you know as, as 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 an amalgam, you you put them together, then you start to, you, to draw draw out patterns. Um, and is that then something? Then, you know, once you, I mean, what did you do? Did you look at the historical evidence first? You know, there's a lot of tension between his, history and archaeology, between which one's the quote unquote handmaiden, to use some outdated language. Um, <laughs> then, so, did, did you, what was your methodology in that sense? Did you look at these historical sources and then say, okay, these are some patterns, and then, as it were, tested it with archaeological evidence? Or did you come from the archaeology side and saw, okay, this is what I'm told the patterns are, and this is what I can assess from my, my own overview? Um, you know what was your way your way into sort of you know getting the archaeology and the, the history kind of to talk to talk to each other and what sort of archaeological sources were did you find sort of most enlightening
2: yeah um, I mean now we're going to talk methodology so people might take a nap during this part just
0: just take a cup of tea or something like that come back in in yeah. five minutes right
2: But um, I knew, I knew from the beginning that I wanted an interdisciplinary project. And like I said, because of the Center for Environmental Humanities Center that I was in, very much encouraged that. So I knew that I was going to take the sources and I knew the contemporary sources and I knew that I was going to take the archaeological material and I was going to compare them. But that meant that I had to do kind of tests on each of them to like make sure that I could use them because you can't like, it's like, you can't. Just say like, oh, well, these were written in the ninth century because, uh, and that means that they're accurate, right? Like that's like saying like, oh, Donald Trump tweeted about it, so that must be right. Um, I always. Well, that's like what an is. is. It's kind so, of
0: like one sentence, isn't it? And then you've got to decide the entire kingdom based on. So if someone was trying to tell our history of our century from a tweet, and that's essentially what we're trying to do, really, isn't it? With yeah. the annals, particular, yeah
2: yeah exactly. So, um, so, yeah, so the first chapter of my thesis, well, the first chapter of my thesis is actually like a whole lit review where I go through what every nation has to say about the Vikings um and why, and that, and then, you know, saying like this is why we can't do national studies, this is why we have to do a broad scope um because we're losing a lot of information by doing the Vikings in England or the Vikings in Ireland um so that's chapter one chapter two i do um go through and i do these tests on the annals and the chronicles so i'll do a 20 or a 40 year period of mapping say the annals of ulster not just the vikings but i will map um every single event that happened uh, over the course of 20 years and then i can kind of see and and that means that like when i'm actually mapping them i'm not uh if it's too broad if they say like oh there was an attack in Munster or there was a a two kings fought in 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 Ulster like I don't actually map that because it's not specific so I'm only mapping very specific things and that means that when you end up throwing that all up on a map um, you're kind of seeing a cluster around likely where it was written and as it kind of spreads it it starts to thin out and then you can kind of see that there's like nothing really for like the West or the South. So, and then I was also doing statistical analysis on those and um, which was separate from the coordinates and looking at the different types of conflict or the diplomacy or whether it was had to do with the church. Um, so those were my tests to kind of see, you know, can we trust uh, the geography, like the, the provenance of, what they're talking about, and can we trust them to record um, different types of different types of events? And it was really interesting to see, like *Annals of Ulster*, definitely is northeast, um, and same with uh, uh, *Annals of Um When you're looking at like the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, it's very much Wessex-based, which would be yeah. southwestern England. Um, there's like one or two mentions uh, in the north. Um, but like generally speaking, like you're missing huge gaps of what's going on in England and definitely Scotland. Um, the same with the Frankish Annals, the Royal Frankish Annals, um, which were written during Charlemagne and Louis XIV, the 14th, Jesus. Uh, Louis the Pious. Um, that's much more comprehensive, a huge geographical spread, but when that breaks off into the Annals of St. Bertrand and the Annals of Fulda, those break apart into East and West. Um, and so, yeah, so that was my methodology with the annals and the chronicles was to make sure I knew to what extent I could trust them. Because, as I said before, like, you can't just take it as, like, it, it would be historically incorrect just to be like, <laughs> well, the annals of, of Ulster said that, so it's got to be true. Um, and then with the historic, or then with the archaeological material, um I had to that was that took time I really struggled with uh which types of evidence I was going to use and I settled on um a silver hoards, inclusive of coins um and what I ended up doing is I mapped uh I tried to map the mines starting with the origin of the silver this was part of my methodology my test um but there was only one uh, large silver mine in Mel in France at the time, and the rest of the mine seemed to have come from uh, the east. And so then it was like, okay, well, now I'm going to map all the mints for the different periods. And that was, oh my God, it was so exhausting. Um, and so then I mapped all the, the Frankish mints over the course of Charlemagne to... Uh, until the collapse of the frankish empire same with like there were like four or five mints in england up until athelstan at which point there were and this is the thing too is like um some mints would oh my god sorry sorry necessarily marked out where they were mint like coin was not marked out where it was minted in england especially so you didn't know if it was coming from london or if it was coming from york um until athelstan in 924. And then, of course, Ireland has no mints. Um, and so then I looked at the hordes, and I specifically took the Carolingian hordes as collected by Simon Copeland. And I mapped Durham hoards, which were uh, um, collected by Christoph Kilger in 2007. And also, I'm going to pronounce his name wrong, the Polish, do you know who I'm talking about?
0: yeah yeah i do yeah we can we can probably badly double this in later when we're both <laughs> when we can remember. but yeah i know yeah yeah i mean that's i mean what tonight is talking about there is that you know this the same the same people that i was using in my research as well and now this this new research i mean simon um was was at the conference with uh, with with jane and uh Kershaw and stephen merkel and there's so much work being done now so you know even the work that you know tonight and I've been looking at in the past there's so much coming out in that in the near future but there's enough there now uh, as tonight is saying that you know we we can begin to sort of build a, a, a picture of because you're looking at this wider thing of directions and and, and, and sources so um yeah so I, I, you know lo- looking at you know are there any specific um hordes that were interested or or, or, a, or a collection or a regional uh, grouping of hordes that kind of uh, you know enlightened you in any in any particular where you, you when you started to see ah you know that that that's that's a pattern emerging here?
2: Yes, um, so I think one thing that we don't necessarily look about look at is that there were two mints in Denmark when it had to be in Lenit Reba, and that's really 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 important when you're looking at silver hordes in denmark and up into norway into 920 not not after but 920 and you're going to see that there's actually not that many hordes that make it over not that durham horde specifically and so and even carolingian as well and where you see is you have the durhams that are in gotland and then they end up in the irish sea area as well as what uh tom you call the quardale corridor between york and dublin um but there's not really to end up there's not that many that end up in um york even or any that end up in kind of the uh, north held territories in um in frankia and also at the same time i have what i termed the silver curtain and there's going to be a paper on this that's forthcoming but the Durham hordes don't make it past this area in central Germany right beneath Jutland, and there's this there's this gap that is what I call the silver curtain or the silver or the Durham hordes don't pass west and the Carolingian hordes don't pass east there's just a gap and what I take you that just point mind, out here
0: to the listeners that dirhams are silver coins that are coming from uh, mints like baghdad and, and the caliphate but it's also places like uzbekistan as well so that's one of the major silver sources is tonight I was just explaining at the moment sort of in in sort of eastern europe and in baltic europe but uh, sorry go on it was yeah just to, because then you and i both both love these little coins but just in case anyone didn't i can't imagine anyone not but uh so yeah sorry no, this gap <laughs> this, 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 this curtain so what what so what what is what you think is is happening here then
2: well, I think when you're looking at the mint, like, and this is where mapping the mints came into view, is I think that there was a currency definitely within Frankia that was so strong that any germs that came into Frankia were stopped at the border, melted down, and redistributed into Frankish mints. But I think that also came into play within Denmark as well, where they weren't necessarily, I'm not saying it became, it was a coin currency, but I think definitely ingot, and then there's um these like arm rings that they used as currency as well. But I forget what they're called off the top of my head. But um they've been very well studied by John Sheehan. Well, oh, the broad um, band
0: arm rings, or
2: no, they're called, oh, I forget what they're called. They're not broad they're band arm rings or the spiral. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um. Yeah, and so I I think that what happened is when these terms start coming over into. Uh, Jutland and um, into the Oslo Fjord I do think that they're melted down and they're turned into these uh, ingots or or the arm rings um, which are used with only currency because why would you have uh, Durham's in Gotland and you'd have Durham's in the Irish Sea region but you wouldn't have any in between and by any I mean yes there's one or two but there's not a large collection of hordes throughout.
0: And this is, this is, yeah, going back to your Christ, Christoph Kilger, and he makes very interesting points. You know, again, we might talk very briefly about the Baltic later, and, and the Gotland is very central to that. Because if you're talking about, you know, these silver coins, these dirhams coming in from through the sort of Ukrainian Russian river systems from, from Central Asia and, and, and what is now Iraq he is seen as early adopters they go east very early and this is again where the viking age doesn't start uh um in in in, uh, in northumberland it it's probably starts in the, the mid 8th century if, if not earlier in the baltic when people are possibly looking for ways to get even more of the silver in the Gotlanders, which is an island just just off the the coast of of sweden um that has it has coin hoards in there of dirham hordes that have 10 14 dirhams dirhams in them but you know going back in your point and 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 your research into christopher Kilner, he's talking about again these really early links could be quite direct between Gotland and the east coast of Ireland um so again you but again at that time in between they are they're they're not being there so i mean it's interesting i mean I, you know i think probably use this as an excuse now to talk about maybe the gotlanders and you know, you know, the fact that you're talking about ben raffield's work about these small groups and these you know um, of, of people so what you know just a, elaborate a little bit more about you know what you're just saying there about the, the gotlanders and and the, the dirhams going to ireland and and you know maybe directly from gotland
2: yeah well i mean i think i think it all has to do with um power and the centralization of the power and this is like i don't talk a lot about like power structures i'm not really into kings i'm not i i'm not talking about you know kings or queens genders or anything like that I'm just particularly interested in how I do I, I believe that within Denmark and um and the Oslo fjord region that the power was strong enough that when the germs arrive and they must have come through, you know, the Baltic into the North Sea. Um, When the germs arrived they would have been melted down and not been held as germs and the germs that do survive as individual are often used as jewelry they're not used as currency and we know that um am i please correct me if i'm wrong tom no no i
0: mean yeah i mean when we're talking about germs in the baltic it's it's especially of gotland they've 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 got so many there that appears to be massive inflation so even the dirhams there that are coins, they don't probably appear to maybe use them as coins so much because they. I think within Gotland, a dirham had basically no worth, you could have ten thousand yeah. of yeah. them and it had had no worth. So, so very odd things are are are, are happening there, and this is again what you know in in future with 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 the various these ablations. So basically, you're you're you're, you're testing these ingots, and basically when Tanaya was talking earlier about ingots and arm rings, you basically get your little sort of um, piece of silver that's in an ingot. You just create a little channel in say something like a soapstone, um, a talc stone, and you pour the silver in, um, and you can you can then use that as in a, what we call it, billion economy. So it's the weight and the quality of silver that becomes like your cash, but they can also be beaten out into these arm rings that Tanaya was talking about earlier. But then what you'll find is then they're cut up and they're used as, as this, what's known as hack silver. So everything becomes very mixed. And as you know, tonight is alluding to there, it's, it's, it's the value and the, the weight of the silver. So we'll be talking about dirhams, but, you know, and that's it's sometimes a nice thing to have and hence why they're, they're kind of, they're associated with trade and I think long distance movement, which is, is something highly prestigious in, in, in the Scandinavian world. But, you know, there, it, it, it doesn't really matter if you're getting, as laterally happens, the silver, the good silver is coming, you know, from, from English mints and German mints. You go to that. It's, it's you just go with where the good silver is coming from. So, yeah, yeah, certainly with me, you shouldn't get too caught up about, about the dirhams. But yeah, sorry, can 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 continue on. But yeah, the, the, the actual form of the silver is, I kind of, it doesn't really matter to them.
2: Yeah, and I, and I think that's the point, is I think that's the point, yeah. is uh I, I think that, I think, especially when it gets to the Carolingians, they have their own economy. So they're not going to be using dirhams. They're going to melt that, um, yeah, yeah. I, God, I was going to say, they're going to melt that shit down. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they're going to melt it down. They're going to turn it into uh, their own Carolingian based coins. And I think, yeah. And I think, and I so so that's what I was doing. Like, I, I know you love your Durham's. I know you love them in their pure Durham form, but I'm much more interested in why the Durham's aren't there in Denmark, why they're mm. not there in England um, as hordes, you know, because you do find them as hordes in the East Coast of uh, Ireland. And um, and even then, not really uh, in Dublin, but within 20 kilometers. So it's likely that they were given as payment to the Irish who then buried them on the borders. That's one of the theories. So yeah, so that's my, that's my theory about coins. Um, I can also talk very quickly about graves if you'd like.
0: I think, I think everyone would really like that. I mean, yeah, I mean, Viking burials are, you can have an entire career entirely just looking at Viking burials in in, in one particular town. So I'm really interested on Tania's take on, because you've looked at them in this this wider project, because, you know, we'll often all of us just read these smaller, very important regional studies. But uh, yeah, I think it would be really good for us to, to listen to how, how you view it, having had that sort of that that wider view. Well,
2: I think I think the uh, the graves more than anything really solidified this two group theory in my head, because when you um, one of my favorite things to do when you're looking at a map is we're so well, uh, we're, we're, we're just attuned to this idea of north to south, uh, east to west, but that's a very kind of 20th, 21st century, even, you know, a little bit earlier than that even, but it's definitely not a 10th or a 9th century thing. So one of my favorite things to do is to turn a map. So that would be like when I'm, I would put myself at Bergen, but then I would put kind of uh, Bergen on the West coast of Norway, but then I would kind of put, I would just turn the map, this idea that like where I'm setting out is right in front of me. So that would mean that west was in the northern position. And so when you do that, you do see this very natural progression of how from Bergen on the west coast of Norway, you set out, you hit Shetland, um, then you turn and you drop down into Orkney. And from there, you're going to see land going down the west coast of Scotland and into the Irish Sea.
0: Importantly, and and the way. top. The, the top. I should just point out to again, it's a time to 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 get your maps out, but maybe we'll try and put a map out <laughs> anyway so you can see tonight. but interestingly, the 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 basically the top left hand corner of mainland Scotland is called Cape Wrath, and Wrath means turning point. So yeah, mm. go on. So yeah, so yeah, that's just to your point. Yeah. So yeah, so you, yeah. you look at it in a new way.
2: Yeah, and so I mean I don't think that's necessarily a brand new way, but it's uh, but when I was when I was doing the distribution of the graves that's where the Viking graves are. They're in Shetland, they're in Orkney, they're in the west coast of Scotland, they're in the island, the Scottish Isles, and they're in Ireland. They are not in the Danelaw on the east coast of England, and they are not in Francia. So that for me, was very much like, these are two separate groups. Um, And then also when you map and I sent this map to you. Uh, I think when you were working on your book, Tom. But when you map the Durhams against the burials, you end up getting these. Uh, the Durhams kind of line up with the burials, but they don't line up with the non-burials, or they their absence lines up with the absence of the burials as well.
1: Yeah. And I
2: thought that that was very interesting. So that for me is like, okay, we have two different two different Viking groups going on here. Um, so and then uh, I owe Jane Kershaw um maybe my career but uh she she did this amazing study where she started looking at female jewelry uh, the the brooches um, the oval brooches which are very if you saw them they look like tortoise backs um, and women would wear two of them one on each uh, shoulder and um so Jane Kershaw had done this study where she Uh, collected all of them, and they're available basically through the Portable Antiquity Scheme online database, and so I mapped them up until 2021. Um, And basically, what you find is they do exist within the Danelaw, south of the Humber. They do not extend up into Northumbria, which is part of England. They don't extend west into Lancashire, uh, which is on the Irish Sea. Um, so these places that we know were you know, Viking strongholds, quote-unquote Viking, um, I, they, these areas that had active burials didn't have the brooches, and the places that had the brooches didn't have the burials. So you're having different burial patterns with these, again, what I believe are two different groups.
0: I mean, and that's interesting as well. I mean, you and I, I think originally met uh, digging, digging uh, at Repton, but Derbyshire is a very interesting place if you're talking about different burial customs because there's the new site at fourmark which is slightly further up the River yeah. Trent, but Re- Repton is, is where they're being uh, the inhumation, the classic Viking burials with your your sword and your spear, um, you know, buried next to your brother, your son. Absolutely, if you think of a Viking burial, you, you're thinking of something like Repton, but you know, a, a couple miles down the Trent they've got Heathwood which is uh, um, a cremation cemetery yeah. and interestingly after you know they're, they're staying there at what we call these overwintering camps or win- winter camps and there's potentially now an idea that maybe one group because they split up the year after once they once they end using this, this after they finish overwintering in 873, 874 maybe the split has already happened because maybe one group with different traditions um, again, going back to the Ben-Rafield, the different groups that are temporarily put together, is at Repton, and the other group is at this other site at Formark, and Fourmark, this other site we've been discovering with with, with, with Kat Jarman et al, um, slightly further up, but it's near Heathwood, near this cremation burial as well, so is that kind of what you're saying, you're seeing different groups in this, burial, the burial uh, rites?
2: Yeah, I mean, I do find that uh, Repton and Formark and Heathwood, I do think that those are kind of more active military burial sites because you're seeing the mass burials. And I am talking more about the long-term settlement. So I think that the the individuals or the double burials that we're seeing in Scotland and the, the brooches that we're discovering, I think that that's much more indicative of long-term settlement. I don't think they have anything to do with the uh, overwintering. But the idea that yes, there were cremations in uh, Heathwood, and then there were burials at Repton, I absolutely do think that that is significant of two separate groups that are active together at the same time. The hierarchies, as, um, as as Chris would say,
0: and you know that's you know so we're coming near to the end of our of our of our podcast. I mean, I could talk for another hour, but I think Ace producer Luke might might have something to 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 say about that. And I suppose it's just. You know, you asked me, and I thought it was a really nice ending to the podcast that I did with the shindig. Is, you know, what what then is you know you it could be a Viking dig, it might not be, but what what has been your best archaeological experience? Um, it might be Viking, as I say, it might it might not be, and or or you know even your greatest find or something that you've you you found textually or and and just in your research of archaeology more generally, what what is the thing you know when I'm asking this question. What's the first thing kind of you know uh, springs springs to mind?
2: Um, I have to say my first dig was uh, at Lancaster Castle uh, in twenty 20- in the summer of twenty sixteen, and I got invited by my uh, cousin, and um, it was my first dig, and I was so excited as a volunteer, um, and I found a post hole. It was Roman. Um, late Roman and we found uh, evidence for a third phase of building of the cavalry camp um, and it was just I, I found a couple of uh, Roman coins it was just it was a sunny weather it was really warm it was gorgeous um, we had a couple of Syrian refugees working with us um, everyone it was the summer of the Brexit vote Um, maybe you'll cut this out Tom but everyone was fiercely against Brexit and it was just the talk of the talk of everything and I got to do it with my best friend and it was just such a lovely experience and it just made me feel like archaeology was the right career for me.
0: And I'll just you know I mean you know it's far far, you know far far too uh, modest um, but this wasn't the first uh, uh, or last um, or it was the first uh, post hole that you found because I, I believe you found one at, at at Repton as well. Could you maybe just have any <laughs> memories of, of digging at Repton, which is one of the, the greatest Viking sites, certainly in in, in 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 the West of Europe?
2: Yeah, no, it was. A, it's a huge honor to say that I got to dig at Repton. Absolutely, because it's so famous. And so, you know, you get to do a little hair flip and you're like, yeah, oh, I dug it. I dug it Repton um but t- uh, tom and i were put onto a team uh and um i'm gonna hold this over tom's head for ages but we were putting a slot in and i was like oh i think that's a postal and tom's like no it doesn't look like it it's and not that.
0: it's not it's not a shiny silver coin i'm
2: not
0: <laughs> and we move on
2: but uh but yeah so then we we took it down very slowly because i was like i'm, I'm pretty sure that's a postal Or something. i was pretty sure it was something um, but we took it down slowly kind of centimeter by centimeter and then it was pretty clear that it was a it was a postal and i think it was the first one that was found since the 80s on site yeah. so yeah and then tom did find a second one so tom gets credit for that
0: yeah 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 no it's one of those things uh, on archaeological sites you, you someone will find something cool then everybody is kind of really concentrating on finding that thing yeah. so i wouldn't i wouldn't have seen it uh, uh without tonight looking at it but um, you know, it's, it's been. I think that's given maybe everyone a little insight into the fact that you know, tonight and, and I still get this sort of childlike wonder uh, at um, you know being able to dig in these sites that have been everyone who's anyone who's famous in the Viking world has been able to to go to them and then and then you know we get invited and yeah, it's just it's an absolute it's an absolute joy and it was an absolute joy talking to you today Tanaia. and just quickly before we go what what your plans next you've got your viva coming up and then i know you're interested still in doing lots more sort of data data visualization just a just to finish just to tell us your 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 plans for the, the sort of next year oh, or two
2: well i don't know if anyone is listening and wants to give me a job um <laughs> i am uh no you have a I, website
0: which is tonight Jorgensen, uh jorgensen.com dot com. but we'll, we'll we'll put that out
2: yeah no um yeah i love data i love working with the vikings and interdisciplinary um so i'm just i'm kind of hoping uh to to stay within digital competencies if i move into the private sector but um of course i'd love to stay within academia it's just it's difficult as as i think we all know
0: and that's fine but i think your contribution i mean the fact that you've got you know, an open access website or already is just you know because sometimes it can take years to get a paper out or 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 a book out as 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 we both know they're hugely lengthy processes, and sometimes they're not always open access or very, very often they're not, which is um which you know which is fine, but. At the same point, the fact is that you're immediately, whilst working on it, giving your research out is, is just absolutely fantastic. So um, we'll give everyone the links and we'll share um, all your papers uh, when they come out in the future and reflog this podcast or podcast because we have been talking for quite a while. But, yeah, so <laughs> I just want to say thank you so much from from Luke and I. And, um, yeah, well, best of luck with the Viva. I'm sure it'll be absolutely no problem. And, yeah, thank you so much for, for spending your, your day with us today, tonight.
2: Thank you so much. It was lovely to talk to you guys.
0: Well, I hope you enjoyed that as 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 much as 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 we did. I mean, I don't think anyone, en- anyone could enjoy
1: that as much as you did. I don't think,
0: <laughs> <laughs> but please do write in if if you did if if it's all possible. <laughs> um, you know, I think it's just it's just it's fascinating I to see that you're seeing in, in the introduction. The fact that it's open access, um, you can go to this website now and have a look. Um, you can you can look at all the the data that Tanaya has has analysed as part of that within within this map, and um, yeah, it's it's just something that doesn't happen all that often in in archaeology. But Tanaya's just got this amazing overview of um, the Viking world, really, particularly in the West. And we you know we still don't really know what's happening exactly when, and there is. You know, there's a real sort of confusion is the wrong word, but, you know, we still got so much to learn about what's happening in in southern Scandinavia. So southern Norway, southern Sweden and and what we now think of as as Denmark and and into Frisia, the the, the low countries and and in the north of what is now France. And I think sarah has got some really, really brilliant ideas about what is happening in, in that part of the Viking world. And you know, from my perspective and my research, it's, I think if you understand that part of the Viking world, you, you can understand the whole the whole picture.
1: Yeah, it was, it was an amazing podcast. I, I was actually really interested in that she studied English literature and how that um, kind of came over to this. I, I only thought about it afterwards. I wanted to ask her a question on how she feels that the Vikings may have affected storytelling in say England and Ireland and that kind of a thing because I know from my own previous life as an actor that the play Hamlet by Shakespeare is based on Norse saga as far as I know but Hamlet I think- yeah yeah
0: Danish yeah Danish yeah Danish Princelings, yeah I mean uh, yeah. As, as far as I know as well but yeah that's what Tanai was saying I and mean, she's talking about you know she into the sagas and she was into the sort of the the, the sort of the, the originally into the sort of the romance and just the cracking mm-hmm. stories that used to tell but yeah a lot of the the best sagas are of you know connected to the to the to the irish world and you know that's obviously had a big influence on on what's happening in yeah in iceland when they're actually composing these
1: yeah it's all fascinating it's amazing it was a great podcast hopefully our listeners our viewers enjoyed it and if you did enjoy it And you enjoyed hearing Tanaya, go back and listen to our classic episodes, which all heavily feature Tanaya, including an interview that's in reverse, where Tanaya interviews Tom here about Vikings. So if you enjoyed it, you'll definitely enjoy that. So make sure to hit subscribe, hit follow, follow us on all of our social medias. And if you're an archaeologist watching this and you think you've an interesting story to tell, maybe hit us up, leave us a comment, uh, send us a tweet, contact us on Facebook, wherever you're watching this. Let us know that you'd like to be on the Shindig.
0: And it's uh, goodbye for me, and thank you for listening.